0: Worship team, let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And let's uh, read this passage. Suffering should not surprise nor subdue Christians, is kind of what it's saying. Kind of a somber passage with a, a delightful ending, and that's the way you have to look at the Christian life sometimes, I think. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, whether it be finding out your daughter has diabetes or that your next-door neighbor who's dying of a brain tumor, across-the-street neighbor, I should say, for me, uh, has a perforated colon because the chemo is so strong it blew a hole in his colon. He's got all kinds of stuff in his uh, gut that's probably going to kill him before the cancer does. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing, extraneo, something outside of God's purpose, uh, his awareness, uh, something totally inappropriate that just doesn't line up with uh, the big picture were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, not redemptive suffering, his suffering on the cross is unique, but suffering for the same kind of reasons, uh, especially as we're identified with him, and we have persecution is the issue the original readers are talking about, for sure, thinking about. But to the degree that you suffer as you're associated with Christ, do the right thing and suffer anyway, keep on rejoicing. Now, rejoicing doesn't mean to be ecstatically happy about anything, one thing I remember at seminary they taught us more than once was there's nothing that you can say to people that will make them feel good about tragedy. There's there's no Bible verse, there's no one little thing you're going to say that they're going to be ecstatically happy about uh, receiving a terminal diagnosis or losing their job that they've had for 30 years and their pension because the company has kind of pulled the rug out from under them. So joy in the Scripture isn't ecstatics. It's just stability, and your emotional expression of that will depend on your circumstances and your emotional pattern, and uh, I know some of you think I'm kind of a robot, and I am kind of robotic in the sense that I don't get too bummed out. When bad things happen, I don't get too excited when good things happen. So I kind of basically look the same all the time, <laughs> even though I may be really excited on the inside or really bummed out in the inside. So I may not be the best example of that, but rejoicing isn't to be ecstatically happy that you're being persecuted or you've had a bad medical diagnosis or you've lost your savings in the stock market. It just means to be stable in the Lord despite the fact that circumstances are terrible. I call it being in the eye of the hurricane. So I think that's a helpful way to think about what the scripture means by rejoicing. Okay, Caitlin, so we're not asking you to fake being really delighted about bad things. That's not, uh, I think of what Hebrews 12 says. I say this a lot. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy, there's joy, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He had joy but he despised the shame, and he was suffering excruciating pain. So much so, he says, uh, uh, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" My God, my God, why are you? Why have you forsaken me? Which wasn't him questioning God, but him citing the first verse of Psalm 22, which was written by David in 1000 B.C. that predicted the crucifixion of the Messiah and talked about how God used a horrific situation to produce the ultimate good. We've got a God who's so smart, he can make crosses the basis for ultimate good. So he can redeem our most perplexing suffering too. But we can't be surprised nor subdued when we face suffering. And, and that's my default position. I tend to be surprised every time and subdued every time. So this is a word for me as much as it is for you. But to the degree that you suffer for some of the same causes Christ did, especially when you're doing the right thing and uh, you lose friends or you lose uh, market share or whatever it is, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, when he comes back for us or takes us to himself, we may with a special level rejoice with exultation. Um, we're looking at the book of 1 Peter, and we've we've come to this last major section of the book, and it operates under this purpose statement, but we're in this portion here, Faith Under Fire 102, we're talking about the importance of submission uh, to legitimate authorities and ultimately submission to God's will when we face even unfair suffering. Now, you'll notice the purpose statement is found right in the middle of the book, and if we paraphrase that, this is telling uh, um, Angela, now I it's your dad, it's one thing if he doesn't tell us how old your mother is when she has a birthday, but you're not old enough yet for him to be reluctant to tell us that you're 19 or whatever you are. 27? Yeah, wow. Okay, you are old. Maybe we shouldn't tell you. Yeah, I was going to say that just to be funny. As spiritual aliens par epidemois, as as spiritual aliens and short timers on earth, Christians, Homer Cox, uh, Olga Pollock, Debbie McCoy, should not be controlled by our emotions. Our feelings but we should consistently live our faith centered on the one we trusted for eternal life we should trust him in our earthly life so that we can be stable in the faith despite unstable circumstances so that unbelievers who might slander us because we are believers will see the reality of Christ in our lives not just at church on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights but at the Simmons Center and at work and at Walmart and it, it's hard to be a Christian at Walmart okay I mean it just is I uh, uh, and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. And I think the takeaway from the book is, uh, this is telling Eric Ward and Ray Ward, who happens to be married to Eric Ward, so she really needs this. Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, even when you can't think of a good reason. It's just possible God's got one, okay? It, it, just because you can't think or understand what God's doing, it's real possible he knows what he's doing. In fact, it's a, it's a slam dunk. And that's where faith comes in. I don't know how this works out, but I'm going to trust you with this. Even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, or at least we can't come up with one, uh, to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Now, you know, uh, the reason we're here today, and the reason the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide gathers on the first day of the week, it's not just the second day of the, the weekend, it's the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, for worship, prayer, fellowship, Bible study, Proclamation of the Gospel, there's 2.1 billion of us, Anthony, according to the religious studies scholars, who are more sociologists than theologians, so it's probably a smaller number than that, really, but 2.1 billion Christians in the world, and we all get together on Sunday morning because of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus will do, and that transcends color, country, culture, denomination, and everything else. Uh, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the God-man Savior. He took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and he is the unique person of the universe. What did he do? Well, lived a perfect righteous life. He kept the law for us, as it were. Then he died as our substitute to pay our sin debt in our place because he died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. And then he validated the fact that he's the issue and the issuer of eternal life by being resurrected from the dead. I mean, literally, bodily, supernaturally. This isn't a spiritual thing that maybe somebody felt the vibrations of Jesus and then wrote the New Testament or one guy thought they saw him from a distance. I mean, he appears over a period of 40 days to as many as 500 people at once. You don't have mass hallucinations like that. And so our job is to trust him for eternal life and then the Christian life's real easy. It's just the details are so hard. You're supposed to love God supremely because he saved you. And then you're supposed to love other people. And uh, I think a lot of us can get excited about loving um, uh, poblanos. That's what you call people live in Puebla, poblanos. One week a year. But it's kind of hard to love your family and your friends 365 because they're just so irritating sometimes. But that's exactly what we're called to do. That 's one of the cool things about the local church it's a laboratory where you get to learn uh, to show agape love to irritating people like me you know and so it's it's a it's a beautiful plan so that's what we're going to do today. look at this passage and it's going to be telling us that suffering in this world should not surprise us and it should not subdue us so uh, to understand that and really grab that and live it out we're going to need some special spiritual power, and so let's pray that God will make us teachable, and the Holy Spirit will illumine this text for us, and also we always pray for our firefighters, peace officers, and uh, and military folks, and so, uh, Eric, if you would pray for us in that direction, okay? Uh, we've got kind of a serious, somber topic today, and I've got a, a difficult announcement to make, and I want to get it exactly right, so... Please join me in remembering yet another great icon of the entertainment community. The Pillsbury Doughboy died last week of a yeast infection (laughs) and repeated pokes in the belly. He was 71 years old. Doughboy is survived by his wife, Play-Doh, and their children John Doe, Jane Doe, and Lots of Doe. Plus, they had one in the oven. Services were held at 350 for about 20 minutes. (laughs) Okay, that's all you get today. Okay, let's just let's get to the serious stuff. Uh, Don't be surprised or subdued. Let's look at the don't be surprised part in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. At the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some estraneo thing were happening, something that doesn't fit, Uh, God's unaware of it, he's asleep at the switch, there's no way this could be uh, used by God in any redemptive sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's going to be used. If he can use crosses, he can use whatever horrific thing happens to us, and a lot of horrific things have happened to some of us, Um, as if some strange thing were happening to you. Uh, Suffering shouldn't surprise Christians. Notice he refers to them as beloved. Okay, these folks are believers. There's no doubt about this. Yeah, I think it might be one or two unbelievers in the, some of these groups. There's small groups of, of Christians all over Turkey, but the vast majority of these people have dared to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, and yet they have problems. The idea that if you have enough faith, you want to have problems is a relatively recent theological novelty invented in Western culture, because it sells books and gets people really excited until they get old enough to get the inevitable diseases and aches and pains of old age, and then they blame themselves for their aches and pains because they don't have enough faith. And that's not the way this thing works. So these people are are really Christians, and that's not why they're not suffering because they're pretending to be Christians and not really Christians. Don't be surprised. That word in the Greek text means don't be surprised, except it has the syntax actually means stop being surprised. Now, why would he tell them to stop being surprised? Because every time a big one hits them, they're always surprised. They're thinking if we just get more spiritual and do more Bible study and go to church more often and uh, continue to work on our character development in Christ, which we should do anyway, uh, then we won't have any bad things happen to us. And that's not the way it works. You're not bulletproof. And I'm not bulletproof. So don't be surprised. Stop being surprised. So, and I'm going to conclude with this but this passage is really all about our expectations about reality. And to the extent that we have unrealistic expectations, we're always going to be uh, hurt and uh, possibly angry and bitter. Uh, and that goes back to stinking thinking, as uh, Zig Ziglar used to call it. We've got to reprogram our, our expectations about the now in light of eternity. You're always going to be happy in eternity. Happy is is pleasant emotions based on pleasant happenings, okay? Uh, you can't be happy with a migraine headache. It's not possible. You can have joy, but you can't be happy with a migraine headache. It's not possible because it's not a pleasant th- thing, right? Uh, I remember the first time I had a migraine headache was Dallas Seminary time. I was at Dallas Seminary. Uh, when I had both eyes open, I only use my left eye, which is a weird thing. But I, my, my vision just totally slowly went away in about 20 minutes. And I was actually driving on the freeway. No, I wasn't. I was actually, I think at home when it happened. And I thought, and, and then I kind of had this excruciating headache for a couple hours and then it slowly came back. And I had, ne- I'd heard of migraine headaches. I just thought they were really bad headaches. I didn't know you had these kind of visual, uh, uh, symptoms. So man, I thought about being surprised. <laughs> I was very surprised by that. And I just assumed I had a brain tumor, right? So um, I went to the doctor, and he said, that sounds like a classic migraine to me, right? And he warned it. It's weird because at that point, you won't believe this, but I mean, I drank a lot of Coca-Cola, the real unleaded stuff. And by the way, you know what? The Coca-Cola company has broken my heart twice. Talking about being surprised, I mean, I was like the world's biggest Coca-Cola, full sugar guy through college seminary, and then they changed. They just stopped making Coke and said you can't have that anymore we're going to give you the new coke and then they said that was a mistake so we'll go back to classic coke and at some point i i went to uh, diet drinks which was quite a you take talking about character development when you go from coca-cola to diet drinks you got to be tough man you got to be mentally very tough to make that transition and i've been a coke zero guy forever and now they've just announced they're going to discontinue coke zero so uh i guess i shouldn't have been surprised i know about this verse here but i was surprised at that but yeah, I had these migraine headaches, and I just assumed I had uh, a brain tumor, and I didn't have that. But I you can't be happy with a migraine headache. And it's weird because of, uh, all the stuff they said will trigger migraine headaches. Chocolate, I like chocolate. Caffeine, I drink a lot of caffeine. What else is it? Peanuts, whatever they tell you not to eat. I ate all of it, and I still do. And the older I get, the fewer migraine headaches I get, you know? I get like maybe one a year now. And I've never had it happen on Wednesday. Or a Sunday. That one time, you, m- you, me, Bob, and Debbie were driving toward Conroe. I thought I was getting the initial phases of my uh, my migraine thing, and I think I was. But I've got Bob sitting next to me, and I said, "Lord, you know what? I'd rather drive with a migraine than let Bob drive on the freeway." <laughs> so I said, "You got to help me here." And it, 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 it kind of started, and then it kind of—it's never happened before. It kind of went away. <laughs> But I thought that would be, because that was right after we told him he couldn't drive anymore. And I knew if I had to go up, if I couldn't do it, he'd want to. And we'd have to, you know, fight him for the keys and stuff. But, you know, the great thing, the older the older I get, I don't have to try to make up. Some of these pastors seem to me like they're they're always the hero of their stories. And they make up these amazing stories. And not that many amazing things happen to me, but a lot of weird things happen to me. And my problem is i got to remember them accurately. Because I get home and Debbie will say, that didn't happen in Texas, that happened there. And he didn't say that, she said that. So if you want to get the real version, talk to her on Sunday afternoon. But that's the way I remember it. Okay. But uh, you can't be happy with a migraine, but you can not have joy. And you shouldn't be surprised that bad things happen to good people. Because it happens all the time. And the Bible certainly deals with it many places but here we're being reminded to the uh don't be surprised stop being surprised at the fiery ordeal among you now here's something i haven't seen any commentators point out and so it's i'm probably wrong but this book of first peter was probably written about 64 ad okay he's warning them about fiery trials now at the end of the book in chapter 5 he's going to say he's in babylon But that reference to Babylon is almost certainly a reference to Rome. Now there really was a Babylon, but in the first century it was in ruins and nobody really lived in Babylon. But the word Babylon was used among the Christian community in the first century to talk about just how horrific the Roman government and how perverse the culture was. So I personally think that Peter's in Rome when he writes 1st and 2nd Peter and about a year after he writes First Peter, he's executed, crucified upside down in Rome. But here's here's the extra stuff the commentators don't mention. So he's writing this probably in 64. In June, July of 64, Nero, the Roman emperor, set part of Rome on fire. He didn't do it personally. He had somebody set a fire because he wanted to do urban renewal and kind of build more, different things. And the Senate wasn't going to let him build in a certain area because of the status quo. So he just burned the status quo down. Now, he thought he could probably get away with that, but in the aftermath of that fire, which, raid, which, which ravaged a lot more of the city than he intended, it, it continued for six days. It took six days to put this fire out, and a lot of people were killed. A lot of VIPs were killed. Uh, the Senate really wanted to take Nero out, so he had to have a scapegoat. Who did he blame for the fire? Do you know the, your history? He blamed the Christian, that this tiny Christian community uh, in Rome, for setting the fire that he had almost certainly done himself. The Christians wouldn't have done it for sure. And in the aftermath of that, he would light some of his drunken orgy parties with Christians impaled, set doused with flammable liquid, and burning. Okay. So I don't know if book of first Peter is written shortly after that started happening or shortly before. And Peter is just using a general metaphor here. But when you read about fiery ordeal about that time frame for somebody in Rome, he, he may be thinking about that. So you think you got problems and some of you do have serious, heavy problems, but you're probably not going to be impaled on the stake anytime soon, doused with gasoline, and set on fire. Probably not. I hope not. I certainly don't want to do that myself. It's very possible that's going on. Um, and that's kind of scary. Uh, I think one reason we can't be surprised is because as much as, you know, the Bible teaches us truly about God, but it doesn't attempt to teach us wholly everything we possibly know about God, in part because there's very little we can, we can't really understand everything about God right now anyway. And I'm not sure we ever will, which is going to be part of the fascination of heaven. You're going to constantly be learning more about God. But the Bible makes no attempt to tell Savannah everything she could possibly know about God or every possible theological, practical question she's got in her in her heart and mind. Uh, you've got to live with a certain amount of humility. No matter how much you know about the Bible and how long you've walked with the, with the Lord, you, you there's there's more you don't know than you know. Okay, we can know truly, but we can't know wholly, completely. And so you always have to have enough humility to say. It's just possible that God's really doing some amazing things here, even if I can't see it, and that he's definitely providentially using all things to promote greater goods, even the worst things that happen to me. Life is like a big mosaic, and even the black pieces make sense in their context, okay? We talked about the tapestry that looks like a mess from the, from the back, remember? And that's the way we tend to look at it. We see the back of the tapestry, but God sees it from the front. But he goes on. He says, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, you know, I know some Christians like to tell people in the hospital or uh, when they're in the middle of some horrible thing, uh, We well, just think about this as a test, okay? Uh, and I, that's very biblical, but I think I've had several people uh, tell me after somebody, the chaplain or somebody told them that, that that kind of offended them, that they were being tested. Because I think we misunderstand what the testing, what the, the point of these kind of tests are. This kind of test in the Christian life, Anthony, isn't so that God can know the depth of your faith. He already knows the depth of your faith, okay? It's not so he can see it. It's so that other people can. So I've always thought when when this term is used, when something bad happens to the Coxes and it's being used to test them, it's not so God can see if, like, you know, he just can't wait to see if they're going to handle it and continue to walk with him or doubt, pout, and drop out like he doesn't know. He knows what's going to happen. He knows they've got a real faith. He's not uh, wondering about that. I think it's so he can demonstrate that uh, so the world can see the difference. Why does God allow uh, believers and unbelievers to get brain tumors? I think in parts of the world can see the difference, right? But I was—I found it helpful to think about it this way. I went to Needland High School. I was a bulldog. I went two years to Lamar University, biology major, pre-dental, uh, finished University of Houston. Uh, I went to the University of Texas Medical Center for two years, dental school for me. Uh, and at Nederland High School, Lamar University, University of Houston, University of Texas Medical Center, I took lots of tests, and I always felt they were testing us to try to find something we didn't know. They didn't ask the obvious stuff, especially the, the higher you get. They don't ask you the obvious stuff. They ask you all the little footnotes and all the little nuances that you might not know. It's like they're desperately trying to, trying to find stuff you don't know so they can grade you down. And then, a few years later, I ended up at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I can never forget the first day we were on campus trying to apply early, uh, walking down the hall, and I, you know, I've got the Ryrie Study Bible. This is so long ago; the Ryrie Study Bible was still being compiled. Ryrie was still in the process of rewriting the Bible at that point. You know, um, he didn't rewrite it; he put study notes on it. But walk down the hall, and it says Charles Ryrie on the door. Okay, Dwight D. Pentecost, John Walford. you know, you get all these names. Okay, I mean, it's like the the Hall of Fame. You know, it's like going to Cooperstown. And I just, it's, it's so great. But I, I got to Dallas Seminary, and this is, you know, some people, some of the students are, are amazed at how difficult academically the THM program is at Dallas. It's considered to be a very uh, uh rigorous academic program. Uh It's 120 graduate hours, uh two years of Hebrew uh, required, three years of Greek required. I took three years of Hebrew and four years of Greek, loved every minute of it, you know um made good grades, but I felt like this is so different than Newland High School, Lamar University, University of Houston, University of Texas Medical Center, because even though there's a lot to learn, I always felt like they were trying to find out what we knew as opposed to trying to trick us with stuff we might not know. It just I don't know if I can communicate that correctly or, or uh appropriately for you, but I felt like even though it was still, people made people failed fail Dallas Seminary. Some people don't make it. I you know, can't do the languages and stuff, but it's not like they just give you a degree, but it's just a whole different uh, nuance to it, and I always feel like that's the way you need to read this. Okay, God is testing me to give me a platform so that I can actually have more of an impact in my world for Jesus, which is kind of the reason you're here. You know, in addition to becoming rich and famous and living a nice long life, which isn't necessarily in the cards. But don't be surprised. Stop being surprised when tough stuff comes to you. And he's thinking about persecution specifically because they're faith. But I'm applying this to any kind of suffering in an applicational sense, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Strange means incompatible with God's purpose, outside of God's plan and providence. And I, I'll just read this to you. Such thinking that it's strange and God can't have a good reason for it, even because I can't think of one, while common, and I've certainly thought like that many times, is strange for Christians when you think about it. And this is a very clinical moment for me. I'm not thinking about my worst problem right now. I'm not even thinking about yours. I'm just thinking theologically about the way this works. It's kind of strange, isn't it, when uh, we allow... uh Difficulties and suffering to give us a crisis of faith. When you think about our symbol, okay, now, you can't see the symbol because of the screen there. But if you'll, if if, you know, if you're flexible enough to turn around without hurting yourself, because I don't want to cause any needless pain here, uh, look back behind the uh, the soundboard there. You see the top of David's head. David, they're all looking at you now. This is your chance to shine. So wave, wave to him. That's him. He's the pay no attention man behind the curtain. But you know, we got the 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 cross and the arrow. And the arrow represents not Jesus as one way, and the only way, which he is, but it represents the resurrection. Because the dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can, right? So that's why we got the arrow there. But I mean, basically our symbol is a cross. Okay? What was a cross? I mean, we sanitized it. I mean, the cross was the maybe the most the, the most horrific form of execution devised by depraved human beings, and it was used by Romans against people who had been found guilty of being rebels against Rome. It was a excruciatingly painful way for rebels to be tortured and killed. That's our symbol. And you're surprised you might have to suffer a little bit? <laughs> I mean, guess what? The symbol of Christianity is not a couch. Okay, it's not a recliner. It's not a recliner with one of the, they've done so much, you think they've done a lot of stuff with computers over the last 20 years. You can't believe what they've done with recliners, man. They have, the best scientists have gone into the recliner industry because, I mean, they've got these little uh, cup holder things. Uh, We we took Cooper and Peter to uh, see Cars 3 after we got permission from the parents because they control everything they see and eat, you know. But, uh, took us a couple of days, felt the paperwork. Uh, and we got permission to take our grandkids to see Cars 3. Uh, and, uh, those boys, they love that theater downtown because, you know, you can kind of got a little rocking action there. It's padded. You got a little thing to hold your cup. Uh, you know, we get there on early on time. The thing starts 15 minutes late, but I'm, I'm going to get over it. Uh, but, uh, Cooper looks at me, sees somebody walk by a popcorn. Are we going to get popcorn? See, I'm cheap. I don't usually buy popcorn at the movies. It's too expensive. I said, yeah, I mean, sure, it sounds like a great idea. We'd already bought him a drink, by the way. So go back, get in line. I'm going to miss the movie now. And every little nuance of Cars 3 is important. You know that. So I'm in line, spending too much money. I had to get a co-signer to buy the popcorn. It was that expensive. And uh, they asked me, do you want you want butter on this. Now it's like been 25 years since I bought popcorn at the movie theater. So I thought, man, there's so many choices here. And I thought, hey, it's for the kids. It's for my grandkids. I mean, it's probably $2 a squirt, but I thought, I'm going for it. <laughs> so I get the, I get the butter. And it's a pretty big thing. Plop down in the movie, throw it in front of Cooper. He's got a big smile on his face, puts it in his mouth and says, you put butter on this? said, yeah, and I don't eat it that way. And then Peter said, no, me neither. So now I'm stuck with this popcorn I don't want. You talk about being surprised. That was a bad day for Pastor Brad. I mean, you try to do the right thing. It's not easy. But yeah, um, yeah, the symbol of Christianity isn't a, a chaise lounge. It's not a recliner. It's not a couch. It's a cross. Okay? Uh, plus the Lord Jesus promises us. And talking about people like to claim Bible promises. You know, I live in a world where a lot of folks don't want to claim certain Bible promises, and I'm not crazy about them myself. Uh, John sixteen thirty three. I mean, our our Lord just tells us straight up: um, these things I've spoken to you, so that in me you'll have peace. You won't be surprised, and you won't doubt, pout, and drop out when it happens, because in the world you will have tribulation. And that's thalipsis in the original, that means pressures and problems. You're gonna have pressures and problems. I mean, if you try to grow a garden, you're gonna to have to, you're gonna to have to pull weeds, you know? You're gonna to have to take care of it. It just doesn't happen by itself. But take cor- courage, I've overcome the world. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it is strange that all of us, and my default, after 64 years living on this planet, the same thing, I'm really surprised when a bad thing happens to people, uh, and, um, and I'm always kind of uh, bummed out about it too. But the entire premise of the book of First Peter is that Christians will face suffering, Dennis, so kind of get over that, and let's just think about how we're going to continue in the faith despite that. And it's not that he's testing us because he wants to make us a guinea pig and, and put pin, pins in us and watch us, you know, kind of uh, react to that, but so that more people can take Jesus seriously. Now, I forgot where I found this. I'm pretty sure somebody else said this before I did. But I found this in some old notes recently. And I'm, I may have come up with these categories. But I think they're helpful. One good way to think about suffering is, and we're going to see this again next week in our next passage, uh, there are at least three categories of suffering. In some cases, these may overlap a little bit. You've got, let's call this bad suffering, good suffering, and inevitable suffering. Okay? Uh, bad suffering would be suffering because we've been bad, okay? If we're rude, crude, nasty to our spouse, uh, they may not be real friendly, real, real friendly later in the evening. That just may, may happen. That may be a problem, you know? Um, uh, good suffering is the kind of suffering Peter really emphasizes. Uh, you do the right thing and you suffer because of you're doing the right thing. Because the world doesn't like that. They're offended by that. And then you've got, uh, kind of a catch-all category which if you live long enough, a big one's going to hit you. Inevitable suffering. Bad suffering, good suffering, inevitable suffering. It's just because we're physical beings in a fallen, dying world. F almost looks like uh, DFW, doesn't it? Dallas-Fort Worth. But FDW now, put this in in the newsletter next time maybe, fallen, dying world. That's the world we live in, okay? Now we're going to go to another world that's not going to be fallen, dying uh world, but it's we're not there yet. Okay. So some of the passages that talk about this, I think it's an interesting way to analyze it and think about it. Uh, bad suffering, he says in uh, 415, he's gonna say, first Peter deals with all these categories. Make sure that none of you suffer. And who's he talking to, James, in this book? He's talking to Christians. Okay? That's weird. Apparently he thinks real believers could hypothetically commit murder. You think, is it possible? Can you think of anybody in the Bible who was probably a believer, committed a murder? I'm not for murder. I have not committed any murders. You know, Now, if you hate somebody enough, you want to see them dead, uh, Jesus says that's kind of the same thing. And I've probably been pretty close to that a few times. Not not in the last 29 years. You realize I've been perfectly sinless for the last 29 years. But before that, I mean, that was a bad, bad, bad case. But, uh, yeah, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Now, you know, when you get to that fourth one, it's like, well, no big deal, you know. But I mean, uh, I remember one time Becky Tidwell, we had these people visit. They heard the radio program in Lawton, and they came and visited. And I, I, I can't think of their names now. It's been 20 years. But uh, she and her son went to Israel with us on the, in 2001. Uh, if you remember, remember who I'm talking about there, nobody. I don't make mine up. I just can't remember the details sometimes. But anyway, I remember the first time they visited this family visited, and when you come from Lawton, that's, we'll give you extra points for that, you know? Um, now when the Morazes, uh, I don't think, yeah, that's right. Pam will come up with it. It probably went, come back Wednesday night. She'll know by Wednesday night. She'll remember. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, and I've got pictures of them if you want them. But anyway, what I do remember is, uh, like the next Wednesday night, they didn't drive from Lawton for Wednesday night, and I get that, it's fine. But Becky Tidwell, who we were real tight with at the time, uh, so, somebody had said, isn't it great that that family came and visited from Lawton? And, and, and I said, yeah, that's great. And, and Becky said, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody, but I'm afraid she might be, and I thought, what's she going to say? A troublemaker. And I was, she was usually real positive, so I, she, whatever the lady, she, she must have done something weird that first time. But you know, it's kind of, it's, it's difficult coming in here the first time, isn't it? I mean, it's scary, isn't it? You don't know what you're going to get. But anyway, I, I just thought, I was weighted, I think she might be a, and I thought, what's she going to say? You know, like, serial murderer, you know, an adulterer, you know, or what, and I thought, a troublemaker? What's so bad about that? I mean, isn't everybody, you know? Uh, but you see this list. Don't suffer as a murderer, don't suffer as a thief, don't suffer as an evildoer, or even as a troublesome meddler. I mean just you know, just get along with everybody. That would be bad suffering, okay? Good suffering is the one we really camped on a lot uh in um, chapter three, verse seventeen. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing the right thing than for doing the wrong thing and not suffering in that instance. Okay? Can you say me Meshach, and Abendigo kind of kind of thing? And then inevitable suffering. This is the one nobody wants to embrace, and I talked about when we first got married, we were 20 years old, we drove across town to a small little Bible church with a Dallas Seminary guy teaching the Bible, no bells and whistles, no other 20-year-olds, they didn't want to go to church like that. Anybody else was like 40 with a couple of kids, and it was just 50 people or less. But and I loved those guys, and they they really were, were very kind to me, but whenever we'd get together and do stuff, just around the coffee pot, of course I was drinking my Coca-Cola straight back then, you know, bring my can in. They let me bring my can in, so I like the church, which isn't a good reason, you know, to go to church, but but hey, we give you free coffee here, and every Monday morning, I pick up coffee cups from the board, you know, no extra charge for, for that, but um, I lose my reward, but no extra charge. But uh, I love those guys, but I thought, man, they do complain about their aches and pains a lot, you know, when you're 45 years old. And I was 20, I had no aches and pains at the time, but uh yeah. My flesh and my heart will fail. That is a promise in the Bible. It's actually Psalm 73, 26. And that's one of those promises nobody wants to claim and doesn't fit into the name claimant theology. Peter in chapter one says, all flesh is like grass, not marijuana, the stuff you mow on the ground, on the ground uh, in your yard. And it's glory like the flower grass. It's just here today, gone tomorrow. And that's just the way it is. And thinking about those, I just like categories, having categories like that helps me to kind of think about my suffering and other people's suffering, helps me pray about it better. At least that's my story, I'm sticking to it, and uh, that's what that is. So suffering shouldn't surprise, nor should it subdue us, defeat us, cause us to kind of drop out of being a productive, fruitful, consistent Christian. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, not the redemptive sufferings, but suffering for the same kind of reasons... Uh, you know, especially when it comes to uh, persecution or being marginalized because of the faith, that kind of thing. Keep on rejoicing so that also at His revelation, uh, you may rejoice in a special sense. Now I've already stressed this, but I'll keep doing it because I think it's important. Joy and happiness are not synonyms. We use them sometimes as synonyms. A lot of songs use them as synonyms. I probably slipped and used them as synonyms from the pulpit. But the Bible doesn't really do that. Right? Happiness is positive emotions based on positive happenings. Happiness is based on positive happenings. Okay? So when you've had a good thing happen to you, you get a raise, you get a promotion, you get win an award, uh kind of the, the happiest day in Jan's life, one of the happiest days in your life. I mean, your salvation, meeting Mike, having Michelle, having Macy and Ash. I got a Protect myself here, but probably in the top twenty-five things in your life. When the state of Oklahoma wanted her to be on the state board of nursing, I mean that's per, that's impressive. I mean, it's like buying a boat. Happiest day in a man's life: day he buys a boat. Second happiest day: day he sells the boat. You know, for you, second you're going to be very happy five years from now when you're in with your done with your term, you can actually get your life back, kind of thing. But uh, so uh, happiness is based on positive happenings, and it's fun to be happy. I like to be happy. You can't always tell if I'm happy because I'm a robot. You know, I just kind of keep my cards close to my my vest. And I said in my life, for example, every eight to 10 years when OSU actually beats OU in football, I'm happy for weeks. I mean, I'm happy for months. I mean, I'm still happy about that 41-10 game the year that we went to the Fiesta Bowl, Brandon Whedon. I mean, just thinking about that makes me hap-hap happy. I mean, it's happy. Now, the, the year uh uh what, uh what was the guy's name? Tyreek Hill caught that crazy punt that Bob shouldn't have let him punt, and he returns it. And I think we beat him in overtime or whatever. That makes me hap hap happy. I mean, I'm just happy, 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 happy. Just thinking about it. But um yeah but a lot of the a lot of the games, I don't even think about them. I mean, I'm just kind of it's just a, it's a difficult, painful thing to think about. Most of these years when we play them in football. Just bad things tend to happen. But joy is, the, is different than happiness. Uh, it transcends negative circumstances. It transcends most of the years when OSU plays OU in football, which happens like every year. You know, uh, Joy is the inner contentment of the soul that's resting in Jesus Christ. It transcends our circumstances. Uh, it has an emotional range from stability to ecstatics based on your circumstances and your emotional pattern. It's like being in the eye of the hurricane. Have you heard me say that already today? Yeah, it's a calmness despite the chaos. Doesn't mean you like the chaos. It doesn't mean the pain stops hurting. Doesn't mean the effects stop. But it just is a basic calmness and stability. Uh, believers can experience this blessed assurance if and as we profoundly rest in who Jesus is, what He's done, and what He's going to do. Uh, and I think joy despite difficult circumstances is a major theme of a lot of the Bible. The upper room discourse, the last major teaching um, session Jesus has for the disciples in John 13-17, through which is the key to the spiritual life. He's telling them and us, how do you fellowship with somebody who's not going to be walking around with you physically anymore? That's what he's telling them there. And First John kind of repeats that same theme about 50 years later. It's interesting, at the very beginning of the church age, Jesus teaches that. At the very end of the apostolic generation, John teaches the same content. And once you realize that First John is kind of teaching the same stuff, the Ephraim discourse, a lot of the difficulties of that book go away. Now let's look at a verse that, um, keep on rejoicing when you're suffering, and for them it's unfair persecution. Look at uh, That's hard to do. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. In this same kind of area of thinking and Christian living, we have statements like 1 Thessalonians 5.18. If I can find 1 Thessalonians. It's in here somewhere. Yeah. And just like Anthony, sometimes people misinterpret what the testing is and seeing God's using us as a guinea pig and he wants to see how we're going to do and people resent that. Well, you shouldn't resent that because that's not what he's doing. He wouldn't do that. He doesn't need to do the test to find out what you're going to do. He he knows what you would do hypothetically. He's doing it for other reasons, for redemptive reasons. But uh, people misread that. They misread this too. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. Uh, and, And by the way, in everything, whatever happens is ultimately God's sovereign will for you. But in this passage, the syntax means you giving thanks in the midst of everything is God's will for you. Not just that the circumstances, Romans eight twenty eight are part of what God's using to uh, use you to his glory. But in everything, give thanks. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't read that. Hey, Natalie, don't read that for everything, give thanks. You don't give God thanks for a drunk driver that runs over a family and kills them. You don't thank God for evil, for wars, for rapes, for... Uh, child molesters, you don't thank God for stuff like that. But you can thank God in and despite and in the midst of even the worst circumstances because, we, because God has a purpose for it even if we can't imagine what it is. We just kind of go on autopilot and rest in it. And that's kind of what you're doing. You guys are still kind of in shock, denial. Katie's got diabetes. She's going to have it for the rest of her life unless we get a, a miracle, which can happen. But the wise thing is to do exactly what you're doing. Pray and do everything medically you can to you know to manage this the situation. And I mean, everybody's telling you stuff like this, but I mean, um, I think of Scott Verplank, who's the OSU guy. Uh, I think uh, he and Philip Mickelson are the only two amateurs that in the last hundred years have won a full-fledged PGA event. I mean, Scott Verplank won the Western Open in a playoff. When he was like a senior at OSU, and uh, Mickelson came along later and won uh, the Phoenix Open as a college student. So, just an amazing golfer. He's he he's got the same kind of diabetes, uh, the, the the real thing, the the full, um, full uh, whammy. And uh, you know he is he's done quite well. He's he's almost as old as I am, you know. But, but it's a challenge, and you know it makes everything more difficult, especially when other things happen to you. It's so it's not not fun. Not easy. No happiness in diabetes, but you can have a joy. You can have a stability, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to keep loving the Lord, keep loving the kids, and do everything you can do, and let God do the rest for you. And that's what you, that's what you do. So uh, we are to rejoice, give thanks in all things, but we don't rejoice in murder or adultery, or uh, because of horrible things that happen in this world. Um, and by the way, you know God doesn't either. He's not getting his jollies out of watching horrible things happen. God has a program that permits evil, but doesn't promote it. If you're going to have people making real moral choices, you're going to have to permit the existence of evil. Okay, Because if every time somebody makes a wrong choice, if every time an atheist tries to write some atheistic thought, if God made his pen explode you would just condition them not to write stuff, but it'd still be in the heart. I mean, by definition, if you're going to have a moral universe with angels and anthropoi, heavenly hosts and humans, have I been a speech teacher too long when you're using that much alliteration, it's a bad thing. Got to be. If you're going to permit real moral choices, you're going to have evil. But God's got a plan that permits evil, including in you and me, doesn't promote evil, will in his time End evil and then get us to the best of all possible worlds. It's wrong to say this is the best of all possible worlds. One less rape, you got a better world. One less abortion, you got a, a, one less lie. One less troublesome meddler. You got a better world. I would say this is the best world achievable with free creatures that make real choices, uncoerced. So God is just in, uh, His final uh, status quo, but he's going to get us to the best of all possible worlds, where there's going to be not just constant joy, but constant happiness. But happiness is, see, when you realize happiness isn't a birthright, it's not automatic, it makes you appreciate it even more when you actually have a good day, doesn't it? Everybody says, have a good day. Or they usually say, have a good one, and I would say, a good what? You know, like what? But I, I think they mean have a good day, Right. And that's, a, that's nice. That's nice for strangers to say when they're trying to get you to leave the cash register at Walmart so the next person can buy their stuff. I, I think it's very heartfelt. But when you do have a happy thing happen to you, or a good thing happen to you, it makes you appreciate it more. And by the way, when you get that little urge, when you see somebody do something really neat that makes you happy, before you forget, call them, tell them, tweet them, put it on Facebook, Look around. If anybody's got something that can allow us to transcend being negative, picky, hypercritical about the stuff we don't like and really appreciate the stuff we do like, it's got to be us. Okay? we got so much to look forward to. So I think all of us ought to be more like Barnabas. Barnabas was the encourager. And what he's saying here is to the extent we're not surprised and we're not subdued by real suffering in our life, but we keep on keeping on, keep on trusting and obeying, then when Christ returns to rapture the church, or if we go before the rapture and he just takes us home, there's our our basic uh, chart. I always misplace my little deal here. There it is. Or on top of my phone, I don't look at. Uh, yeah, we're living in the church age, and the end of all things is at hand because we're living on a precipice. History since the beginning of the church age is like going across the top of Niagara Falls. At any point, human history will go down into tribulation as God takes the church out at the rapture event. You can read about this in John fourteen John fourteen one through three, first Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen, first Corinthians fifteen, fifty one through fifty eight, passages like that. But uh Yeah, I mean, we're living right on the precipice of this, and I think he's thinking mainly of the rapture, because we're looking for it. He's just talked about it back in verse 7, end of all things that is at hand. And he says, for Christians that really do well under fire, that hang in there under fire, or the most, literally under fire, we're gonna, in a special way, be able to exalt and rejoice in his coming. You know, the tougher the battle, the more specific, the, the more terrific the victory. I talked about that 41-10 victory, and that was total domination, and at the end, Bob Stoops didn't even try to win anymore, didn't even try to make it. It was obvious, we just, it's over. Well, In my experience, I can't remember ever beating him that thoroughly. I know that was painful for Nancy, I apologize. But in, but that other Tyreek Hill, when really, the game was over, we're gonna lose at home, get that punt return, remember that Krista, and we tie it, and then we win, uh, in overtime, and it, and it was almost easy in overtime. It if we broke their backs. In a way, that's better, because it was more painful. Okay? <laughs> uh, you know, Tigua Tigers played a lot of softball games, and we were pretty good, and, and, you know, just a church league for a long time, but the the game I remember the most, the last year we were really good, last year we were terrible. That, uh, nobody was playing, it was just like me and Ron or something, and it wasn't too good. But, uh, the two divorced players. Uh, but I remember one time, the Emmanuel Church, Team that was so good, and all their good players uh, upgraded to Emmanuel or to, to New Hope West. You know, so they become the New Hope West team. And these are the guys, you know, Sam Darst and all these people, all these really good athletes. I remember one night we're playing them nine o'clock game. They're ahead of us eleven to two early, okay? And we and I'm the pitcher, so I'm giving up all kinds of line drives and stuff. We slowly work our way back, and we make it eleven to eleven. Okay. Which was remarkable. Okay. And we're the home team. We stop them. We score two runs. And I'm pretty sure looking at the clock, the time limit's gone. So now it's 13 to 11. We're going to beat them after being down 11, uh, to, to, uh, two. And when we get the last out, they go, uh, I thought they were going to say ball game and nobody says anything. And I, I'm the, I walked up to the scorekeeper. I said, that's time limit, right? She said, no, there's one more minute. So now we got to go out there and, and get them out one more time. Okay. So um it's 13 to 11 now. I think Homer and Pam were probably there. It starts pouring down rain. I mean, not a little bit. It is pouring rain as I'm throwing my warm-up pitches. And I'm the pitcher, and I'm thinking, if it if this ball gets any wetter, I'm gonna walk in the three runs. that's gonna beat us. I, I'm not gonna be able to control the ball. And you know what? God graciously threw a ball. Easy pop fly to the right fielder. Easy pop fly to the center fielder. Easy pop fly to the left fielder who was our weakest player that day, at Dale. And I'm going, Lord, if he never catches another ball in his life, let him catch this ball. He catches it. We beat him 13-11 after being behind 11-2. And it was so sweet. It was so sweet. Because there's no way we should have won that game. And I'll never forget that. It was just a softball game. Who cares? But to me, talking about one of the top things... Five things in my life, that's right up there, okay? Right up there with my salvation and my wedding. That's it. So I, I do think, go to James chapter one real quick and we're gonna uh, wind this down. I, I think to the, the more we struggle, the more struggles we face now, the sweeter the victories in eternity will be. And I think in the same way that everybody who was, uh, in the U.S. military during World War II, including my dad, got a victory medal, my dad had a victory medal, but he was never involved in direct combat, so he didn't win the Congressional Medal of Honor or Bronze Star or Silver Star or anything like that or Purple Heart. Praise God, you know. But you've got to be in the midst of the battle to get the highest level of commendations and medals, and there are such things. I'm convinced of that for believers. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who's persevered under trial, for once he's become approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord promises to those who love him enough not to doubt, pout, and drop out when they're facing severe trial, whether it's diabetes for your kid or something even worse than that, okay? And Christians debate that, but that crown of life is not salvation. That's as special as like a letter jacket or a medal you'd get. And he's emphasizing all of that. One Christian thinker, he's actually a European. It's hard to find really good European Christian thinkers, (laughs) but he says it is. This is reality. I mean, John Stott would be one, I guess. Uh, when, when a belief in the next world is interpreted as a childish and scientifically impossible opiate or opiate, the pressure to succeed now and fulfill oneself now will inevitably be inflamed by the awareness that there is only this one single and frighteningly brief opportunity to do so. Earthly achievements can no longer seem to be as an overture to what one may realize in another world. They are the sum total of all one will ever be. And when you realize that so many Americans see, uh, you know, heaven as, uh, as a myth, it explains a lot of kind of the, the dynamics of our culture. All right, this passage is telling us that suffering shouldn't surprise or subdue you or me. In our Christian experience, even though that tends to be my default position too often. If I could, uh, suggest a couple of books you might want to read at some time, preferably before the next big one hits you. Although it's okay for you guys to read it now, either one of them. And I get no commission from these people, but, uh, Philip Yancey's book, Where is God When It Hurts is, is, it, it reads like a novel. It's an easy read, but it's very profound. He talks about interactions with, uh, modern doctors. Walks, through, walks us through the book of Job. So he deals with biblical and medical data to talk about the fact that uh, God redemptively uses our pain. And then James Dobson, very famous Christian thinker, a psychologist, uh, wrote a book called When God Doesn't Make Sense, which can be helpful. Uh, Philip Yancey, uh, he has an interesting hairdo and is somebody who should not be talking about anybody's hair. Uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but I find it uh, ironically funny when I say stuff like that. You know, a lot of people are disappointed when they read the book of Job because it's a long read, and some will say, well, there's no answer there. I mean, but there is an answer. God's saying, the answer with you questioning me about your worst pain is, I know why I'm permitting that, and you're going to really appreciate it if you ever can understand it, but in this earthly body, you can't even begin to understand it. Let me show you some stuff uh, this physically I've done, you can't understand. He gives a list and he says, you're going to have to stop questioning me and start trusting me. That's the essence of the book of Job. But uh, Philip Yancey says, the point of the book of Job is not suffering. Where is God when it hurts? Which was the title of his book. Because the first two chapters tell you God's in his control room before, during, and after Job's problems, right? Uh, the point of the book of Job is faith. Where is Job? Where is Job's heart when it hurts, okay? That may be the reason you're here today, to hear that. The point is not, where's God? He's where he was before you found out she had diabetes. It's where, where's your heart, okay? You committed to her, you committed to him? I know you are. And and you don't have to feel good about it. Nobody's asking you to feel good about it. I don't feel good about it either. I think it stinks. I'm very upset about it. But no happiness, no felise. But joy is different than that, right? So, uh, you know what? It's all about expectations. Don't be surprised. Watch this. This is a cycle to avoid. Unrealistic expectations about your wife, your pastor, your church, your job, your life leads to hurt. And even if you've got totally unrealistic expectations, illegitimate, you're going to have real hurt when they're not met. Okay. But it goes back to you, not necessarily to your wife. Okay. Unrealist, unrealistic expectations lead to hurt. Hurt, if it's nursed, leads to anger. And anger, you can blow up, you can clam up, or you can wise up. And most of us blow up or clam up. Don't have time to develop all that, but we will later at some point. Anger held on leads to bitterness and depression. A lot of depression is anger turned inward. And it's tragic when that goes back to a Genesis. that's just unrealistic expectations about God, or your husband, or your job, or America, which I think a lot of people who are so hateful and bitter about the status quo have unrealistic expectations, but hurt, anger, bitterness, and hatred, okay? Proverbs 14.4 says, where there are no cattle, the stall is always clean, but you're better off with cattle than without cattle, which means, as the rabbi said, there's no milk without manure. You can wake up every morning and whine about the manure, or you can shovel it knowing you're better off with the cattle, and you can use the manure to grow eight-foot-tall tomato plants. Am I right? Did you do that, Lloyd? Oh, come on, don't act like you didn't do that. You know, you eight-foot-tall tomato plants, okay? Scripture generally, 1 Peter specifically, tells us we must temper our expectations about life now, consistent with the fact that spiritually, the world we live in is broken. Every one of us is not what we could or should be spiritually, and all of us are terminal. Okay? Now, we're one heartbeat away from the rapture event, which could happen. It's imminent. But uh, it might not happen for another thousand years. While God has a purpose for all of this and a plan that fits it all in, and he likes his plan, and he's not going to ask me to consult with him about his plan, um, In the meanwhile, we're in the midst of a mess. That's like the worst word Cooper and Peter can say. You can't say "my gosh" with my boys, Papa. You shouldn't say that. You say "my goodness," but not "my gosh." It's too close. Okay, so they've been trained well. Okay, but I remember like the worst thing they can say. That's a mess. That's a mess. That's that's like DEFCON four when my when my grandkids call something a mess. Papa, you're a mess. That's like the worst thing you can say about me. And we're in the midst of a mess right now. But our responsibility. Uh, as believers in Christ, a crucified Savior is not to be a Pollyanna, like it's not going to happen to me, or a pessimist. There's nothing good in this, and God can't possibly be in it. It's to become prudent. And that's why we spent the last 47 minutes looking at the Word of God on this. So rather than being surprised when suffering hits us or those we love, we can actually rejoice by remembering. By remembering we're kind of sharing the sufferings of Christ as part of his purpose for his church, and there's superlative blessing in the future if we will just hang in there. So hang in there. Father, help us to be tempered by this truth, not to have a negative, uh, pessimistic idea about life on the earth, even though it's a it's a difficult uh scene to movie to live out. But help us to transcend it. And I pray you you'd help us to realize we can have a, a calmness a stability, even in the midst of great pain, as we rest in the crucified, risen Savior. We pray these things to your glory and ask for the power to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.